0: Welcome to the Clueless at the Work podcast, where we talk through a framework for being successful in your job. My name is Anthony Garone, and I'll be hosting this show with some friends who are experts in helping people grow. The content is based on my book, Clueless at the Work, Advice from a Corporate Tyrant, which is published by Stairway Press. You can find out more at cluelessatthework.com. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Clueless at the Work podcast. My name is Anthony. My name is Andy. And uh, we are here to talk through my new book, Clueless at the Work, Advice from a Corporate Tyrant. Available on Amazon. And Barnes & Noble, and published by Stairway Press, which is a small, independent, publisher based in uh, Apache Junction, Arizona. A good friend of mine named Ken Kaufman runs it. And uh, he's got a really great roster of authors, dozens of books available. And um, the publisher is actually doing pretty well. They've been selling a lot of books. So that's really good. Really? Yeah, yeah. Good for him. Yes, very good for him. That's so awesome. um, I am here with my good friend, Andy Fry. And the reason we are doing this podcast is because, A, people consume podcasts like, uh, like like hot cookies. Like fast food. That's right. And people don't want to read my book because it's a book. <laughs> they want to hear people talk about it. Um, well, maybe not necessarily my book, but just books in general. I think people enjoy podcasts more. So here we are. And Andy and I used to uh work together at a wonderful company in Tempe, Arizona, where he still works. It is a wonderful company. Yeah, why don't you tell us a little about it?
1: Yeah, so the company is Melt Media. It's a creative agency, digital agency, software development firm, uh, does a lot of uh a lot of large large websites for very large billion dollar brands, uh big in biotech, pharma, um and but still it's a software development company, but also a very creative company. It's actually branching, branching out. It's, uh, we're getting some uh, copywriters and starting to offer other services that are just more convenient to have in-house than what we used to do. But uh, when I started, it was a little scrappy thing with 20 people, and now we're 70 strong or more, and um, things are going great. It's a super cool company. Great vibe.
0: Good yeah, company. and uh, in the book, there are plenty of stories of when I was working there... Um, And there is a lot of great stuff to learn while, while I was there. So, um, it'll be cool to walk through some of those stories, but, uh, for the benefit of the listener, um, when Andy and I used to work at melt media together, we would have these long conversations about how to help people and how we were each clueless and how <laughs> yep. people working with us were clueless at times. And uh, when I thought about making this podcast, I thought, Andy would be the best guy to talk with. The
1: most clueless. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but we have, we have so much rapport, so much history, yeah. so many uh, great deep moments uh, yeah. that I thought most of the conversations you and I had in your office or mine I was like, man, I wish these were recorded. So yeah. here we go.
1: We lost a lot of good good content
0: just talking
1: to the chairs and the chalkboard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we can make it up yep. right now. Yep. <laughs> All right. So um Andy, tell us just briefly, like a one minute, you know, snapshot of your career history.
1: My career history. So I have been in IT for uh over thirty-two years. Um And I started because my dad bought an Atari 400 to play Mm Pac-Man, it's probably about the sixth grade, I think it was sixth or seventh grade. And I, all through my career, switched between doing software, hardware. Um, I was actually entrepreneurial. So I started several companies, a networking company when I was just out of college, uh, did a lot of uh, old school ArcNet, Ethernet. I mean, this is way back uh, then. Kind of worked my way back to doing software for some people, custom stuff, then eventually uh, worked for some school districts, K-12 school districts, got into web development the web when the web just started up, and then started a company doing web development, uh, was also doing network engineering. I was one of the early certified Novell network engineers, um, did Cisco routers, everything, anything I could, I was gobbling stuff up as fast as I could, and um, and then I discovered the seven habits of highly effective people at one of the school districts I worked at. And one of my directors there said, Oh, you're, you're going to manage someday. So you should read this. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not going to manage. I'm the blinky lights are too cool. And then uh, over the course of time, went back and forth between hardware software, ended up back here in Phoenix and worked for uh, the Phoenix new times, did web development, then got a um, call from a friend who went to melt media. That was 10 and a half years ago. And they hired me as a JavaScript guru and I never touched JavaScript again. And uh, slowly over the course of time at Mount Media, I made my roles, went from software developer, told them they needed a sales engineer, became a sales engineer, kind of stopped doing development at that point, then got back into development because I was tired of doing the business development. And then we had a exodus of some senior people, and then you left, and there was a vacuum for somebody who could listen to the developers be a nerd whisperer basically. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote up a proposal for that role. And so now I'm basically what you were, but I don't do any tech anymore. It's all concentrating on the people. So mm-hmm. that's where we are today.
0: Right, cool. And uh, for the benefit of the listener, I uh, also I have a similar background to Andy. I, did, I wasn't so entrepreneurial, but um, started out doing a lot of networking, sysadmin stuff. You know, I, I'm also in IT, uh, got a computer science, programming degree. And then I said I would never go to college again. And then 12 months later, I was enrolled in a master's program. <laughs> and then I said, uh, I, it took me four years to do the two and a half year or two year program. And I was like, uh, well, that was terrible. <laughs> I am never going to go back to college again. <laughs> and now I'm the chairman of the industry advisory board for that program. So role well well play. <laughs> I'm so good at this. <laughs> uh, um, and then just in, in terms of work, um, I, I have kind of a varied background. While I was studying computers, I ended up working in Hollywood for a little bit as a uh, guitar technician and studio technician. And music is a major theme in my life. Um, so I've always been doing something musical. Uh, and then after I learned in Hollywood that the chances of making a full-time income playing guitar was almost next to nothing. Uh, Even the greatest players I've ever seen in my life are driving in vans and, you know, eating at Taco Bell and sending (laughs) a majority of their paychecks to their families, which isn't much. Um, I realized technology is the way to go. So, yeah, I pursued technology. It worked. uh, I've always done some form of programming and computer management or something like that. So that eventually led to, uh, well, when I was 22, I said... When I'm 30, I want to make $100,000 and I want to run teams of technologists. I got that job at the age of 29 and 11 months. <laughs> <laughs> I met my goal.
1: But you said you, said you wanted to manage technology. I did say
0: I wanted to I manage. I was the opposite. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So I think that's why you and I get along so well, because we have a lot of overlap in terms of interests, yep. in terms of history, but uh, not a lot of overlap in terms of where we wanna go with our lives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's get started. Yeah. Um, Clueless at the Work is a book that, um, that I wrote over the, last, uh, over the last few years, I ended up just feeling like I need to change my life. And uh, when I was 32, I spoke with Steve Vai, I talked about that in the book right at the beginning, because I think he was the first one to kind of flick my ear, you know, (laughs) and go, hey, you got to start thinking differently. And he told me about mindfulness. And it sounded like, yeah, this is really cool, you know, mindfulness, yeah, I bet, you know, Steve's into this, I'm into it, whatever. (laughs) Uh, But as he was talking about mindfulness, I really, I didn't know what he was talking about. We were sitting in front of some flowers and uh, it was, with Steve, everything's kind of big. So like, it was a big vase of lilies, you know, stargazer lilies. And some of the petals were on the table, but some of the flowers were looking amazing. And he said, uh, you know, these flowers aren't trying to be anything that they're not. They are exactly what they are right now and some are thriving and some are dying. And that's okay. And they don't need to pretend to be something that, that they aren't, you know, the dead one isn't trying to look alive. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then um, six months later, I was at a guitar camp with a guitarist named Robert Fripp and uh, he was talking about mindfulness and you know playing the instrument and being very considerate of what you're doing at every moment and not just with the guitar like when you're not playing guitar in fact we didn't even play guitar for the first three days we learned how to sit and stand and breathe and i thought okay this is interesting what is this what am i doing here you know yeah (laughs) And then one day in class I was like bouncing my leg, you know, just that nervous kind of thing. And he goes, everyone take a look at Anthony's leg, (laughs) you know, look at him, bounce his leg recklessly. And he has clearly no control over what is happening right at this moment. And he doesn't even know why. And everyone turns around and starts laughing. And I'm like, Oh crap. And then I realized, this is what Steve was talking about, you know, like awareness of who you are and, and paying attention to your body and allowing yourself to just be. No human being just twitches their leg, you know, doesn't just sits there and bounces. Their, that's like a nervous tick or something yeah. like that. Yep. And that's when I realized I was clueless. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever have a moment of uh, like that where it was like a turning point in your life?
1: Yeah. The, so the seven habits story is mine. Yeah, that was, what happened? um, so I was late twenties. So in my uh, kind of late twenties, I started, um, skydiving and it was, uh, I didn't want to, I was doing it because I just didn't want to be a wimp. You know, my best friend, best friend, uh, said, Hey, we're going to go skydiving for your birthday. And I, I had never, I'd always made fun of skydiving you know people always talk about it yeah because you know it's it's uh you know why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane that sounds insane you know and i had no interest it it, i didn't like roller coasters till i was 16 and Uh um and i i went to the class to learn how to skydive it was a saturday afternoon uh ironically taught by a safety guy from dow chemical Mm -hmm. and um super cool guy and we spent eight hours learning how to do it and then we went out the next day that was a saturday went out on a sunday and there's this rickety old cessna you know 182 out there um and the interiors ripped out the only person who's got a chair is the pilot and we've got these ratty you know rigs on and jumpsuits and everything and i just kept plowing through it because i didn't want to disappoint my buddy dan and mm. and uh i went and did that jump and and I got out, you know, the wind is ridiculous, you know, and, and I came down and landed. We were, you're supposed to tumble when you land, do a thing called a PLF, a parachute landing fall. And I stood up, realized I was supposed to do the crash, and then so I just rolled. And, um, <laughs> and after I did that, I, you know, it was, it, that was awakening because I realized I had initially been doing this to just not wimp out. Now I was so thrilled with it and so excited, I wanted to go back up again. Mm. And around that same time, I was at a school district, and the uh, new director of IT uh, was a guy um, named Payman Seydezan. He was a super, super cool guy, very chill. Um, He came from Michigan State University's uh, veterinary school as an IT director. I think that's what his previous role was. And he wanted everybody to read Dr. Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and I had been up at that, you know, up to that point in my life, which wasn't very long into my life, you know, but, uh, half the distance to where I am now, uh, I, I had been bouncing around, bouncing off things and just not paying attention. I had no responsibilities. It was just me. And I just did what I wanted to do. And I wasn't a terrible person. Wasn't, um, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't a pain to anyone. But when I read that seven habits book, all of a sudden it was like holding a mirror up and i realized all the things i didn't do all the things i didn't know and that book actually caused me then to start reading all the other books that i started reading and it was slow in the beginning i was not a reader i did read manuals really well <laughs> i absorbed you know hundreds and hundreds of manuals loved reading that stuff it's dry it's technical i get it my brain works well with that stuff but the 7 habits was a new thing and and it it transformed the way I thought about how I interacted with people. I did not realize uh, any of the things, like begin with the end in mind, all the simple things, uh, you know, seek first to understand, then to be understood. That was a big one for me. I always just ran headlong into things. I'm just like, figure it out as I go along. And um, then over time, and, and especially more over the past 15, 20 years, I absorbed more and more books and more books led to more books and more authors referenced other authors and, and researchers. But it, um, and mindfulness was the same thing. I stumbled onto that because of a, one book mentioned it somewhere, mentioned one of the authors that I think I was reading Martin Seligman, uh, positive psychology stuff. And then I find some of the other mindfulness people and then I start reading the research on it. And then suddenly I'm like, this is a thing. This is a big deal. I'd never heard of it. Didn't know anything about it, but it just, it snowballed, everything snowballed. And then I was hungry for understanding why people did what they did why people interact the way they do and that's today I'm still I, I sometimes juggle three audiobooks when I walk in the morning because I, I I don't know which one I want to read the most you know and and then yours came out and I had to now I've got to read that you know and so it's uh um plus I had i my entire life I've had ADHD so you know I've I've bounced around a lot but uh now that I've got the ADHD under control I can actually get through a book take my notes, apply it, get through the next book, take my notes, apply it, you know, so it's, uh, but yeah, that was seven habits was my transformational. That was a big one for me.
0: I think that when you landed, after your first skydive, and stood up and then rolled. <laughs> yeah. That is a total clueless move. Yes, you know, yep. And we all do it. It's, yeah. um, I think it's Brian Regan, who does that bit about, um, like when you're in a taxi and, and they drop you off at the airport and they're like, have a great flight. And you're like, you too. Yeah. And then you're like, <laughs> they're not flying.
1: <laughs> you do it at restaurants. You do it. At, you too. You're yeah, on autopilot. You too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And
0: that's exactly the problem. The autopilot yep. thing. Yep. Autopilot is what led me to write this program, you know, for Kensho Education. Yeah. And it was called Pause, And the idea was to get people off of autopilot but it is so hard our autopilot I don't know if it's an American thing or whatever but I know I'm not unique in suffering from the uh, the kind of autopilot that I face and I know you face some of it too but it's that whole thing of like you just you say things because you're trained to do it or like you said uh, I knew I needed to do it So I stood up and rolled instead of like, I don't need to roll because I landed safely. I'm on terra firma, right? Why am I going to roll? Oh, because that's in the book. You know, like someone told me that's what you do next. Yeah. Like saying you too is a courtesy, even though the other person is not flying or not eating your meal or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that kind of cluelessness is really, it's so pervasive. Like we only get these little conscious moments of it. But there's so much cluelessness in our lives, in general.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's constant. The autopilot thing is constant, and I see I see people doing it all the time, and it's almost it's almost as if they just stop thinking. Mm-hmm. And and you know the same thing with the mindfulness, always telling people to breathe, just just breathe. One of the big things that I uh, that I keep hammering home to people is. Uh, you have a, and it, this is in the back of one of the anniversary editions of the Seven Habits. But the uh, there's a there's a space between stimulus and response, and you know you you have you have the the choice to to do what you will with that space. That's where your power and your happiness lies is in that space. For people who are on autopilot and don't think and don't manage how they respond to stimulus, that space is very small. They don't there's not enough time to think about how you're going to respond to uh, to the stimulus. But when you step back, take a breath and pause, as you said, you know, and, and think more about that, you open up that gap and it gives you more time to think. It's, it, it actually saves you from saying, I'm sorry more often. And, um, and it does bring you into the moment. And Mm -hmm. when you take those deep breaths and that's all you're thinking about is taking that breath because you remembered to do it. uh, You're off autopilot now Mm -hmm. because you're off course from your normal, your normal track, which would have been to just respond. Right. You know, so um, it's a powerful tool. Um, it's actually on my... Well, actually, it's college football season, but usually it's on the face of my phone. Mm. Yeah, that little saying, so...
0: Well, I see autopilot in, um, in political beliefs, you know, like, mm. oh, it's Trump, therefore, it's bad. Right. Or, oh, it's Obama, therefore, it's, it's bad. bad. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, we do this with everything that we encounter. Like, I have a preconceived notion of this thing. So it's either, it, it is what I think it is until it isn't, but it's not that I was wrong. It's that I learned, you know, like yeah. when you read more, you end up realizing how much you learned, but you don't end up realizing, unless you're humble, how little you knew. <laughs> <Yeah. Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the jokes that I like to say is there are entire libraries full of things I don't know, Yeah. because it's so easy to just believe i'm smart i understand life i know what's happening in the universe when in reality i'm a moron i am clueless i am a i am a vapor in the wind yeah. you know here today gone tomorrow yeah. and instead of having this notion that i am smart that i know what is right and wrong for the world you know like Like, any presidential decision, like, I I have any authority or capability to assess its merit, you know? I can't even make a good decision on, like, is it better to use Java or, you know... (laughs) Python. Or Python on (laughs) this project. Right. (laughs) Forget about national national consequential decisions. Right. I can barely make simple decisions. Yeah. And yet, you see these people who are like, well, this is clearly wrong because this guy's a bozo, you know, like maybe there's a lot that you don't know about what is happening. And I really, I'm hoping that this book introduces some of that sort of belief humility and the, the mental humility, because to say that we're clueless is an understatement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't even understand why a seed in the dirt with water turns into a plant, you know, right. like we know it's a chemical reaction, but why does that happen? I don't know. And yeah. the olfactory senses, like there's no money in understanding how they work, but they're not quite understood how your senses work. Yeah, Like your sense of smell, or your sense of taste. There's not full understanding of these things. My wife, who's a nutritionist, she's like, yeah, the state of nutrition is like the state of medicine in the 17th century or something like that. Right. And even, you know, medical knowledge, it's so limited. We think that we're so smart. But we're not. We yeah. just have fancy clothes and shiny technology. And then we think, oh, I'm making this much money. I have a job of this status. Yeah. I am smart. Yeah. But that's, it's poison. Yeah. And that poison is the autopilot. <laughs>
1: yep. And I,
0: you hit on it with humility.
1: That's the other thing. Humility and um, always being curious. I use that ABC uh, acronym constantly. Um, when you're, when you're always curious, you realize because you're digging for more information. And the more you dig, the more you realize you don't know. And then you, you just kind of naturally ass- assuming you've got some kind of awareness and you're not a sociopath, um, that you, you are just a little speck and there is an infinite amount of knowledge out there that you don't know. And, and it, it's also related to all the, you know, listening to people. Every time you sit down, there's something they know you don't know. If you can just remember to always be curious and then mix in that humility uh you'll realize that and you'll go through life going and i when you said something about people saying you know i uh, acting like they know for sure something is right or wrong when you hear people like that do you do you have an alarm in your head oh absolutely yeah it goes off like yeah do you know that for sure is that a thought a fact like you know tell me how you know that
0: for sure Ron uh-huh. Siegel, who uh, did the Science of Mindfulness lecture series, he said that when he, um, when he goes to conferences about mindfulness and meditation, he asks a question, who here is good at meditating? <laughs> and the people that raise their hands, he says, those are the people that I need to like, not talk to. Yeah. Those are the ones who don't understand what this is all about. Because as you search yourself through meditation, oh, this mosquito... <laughs> As you search for yourself through meditation, you should be realizing how little you control about yourself, how little you understand about yourself, and how distracted we are. Yeah. You can't be good at meditation. The more you learn about meditation, the worse you think that you are at it. You know? Yeah. Yep, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think it's Bill Nye who had a quote um everyone has some knowledge that you don't have. Yeah. Everyone, everyone you encounter, and heck, even Bill Nye. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: Even Bill Nye knows something that we don't know. <laughs> yeah. There's
1: a there's a quote I wrote up on one of the whiteboards at
0: the office, um,
1: and I don't remember who to attribute it to. But uh, basically, if your mouth is open, you're not listening. Yeah. You know, and which is a super common problem in the office world today. I think in general. Um, we, you know, came from the factory with two ears, one mouth. We should be listening twice as much as we're talking, and um, and so any kind of quote I could find related to that, because I see it all the time. Right. A uh, lot, a lot of talking. Um, did you get it? Oh, almost, almost did the Miyagi. Yeah, I, I do that all the time. Yeah. Then I get blood on my hands. Yeah. This
0: must be so interesting to listen to. Yeah. Us <laughs> trying to catch a mosquito, a mosquito. while talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to the um yeah. the basics of the book. So stage zero. I think we can cover stage zero in this episode here but uh oh there's flow which is an important topic that we can get to um but let's talk about the basics the i start with a story from ron siegel who i mentioned uh, did the lecture series the science of mindfulness and he talks about the buddhist student who's getting tea poured by the master, and as he's talking on and on. um, Well, I'll just read it. Yeah. All right. The Buddhist scholar came to learn from the Zen master. The scholar had an extensive background in Buddhist studies and was an expert on the Nirvana Sutra. He came to study with the master and after making the customary vows, asked her to teach him Zen. Then he began to talk about his extensive doctrinal background and rambled on and on about the many sutras he had studied. The master listened patiently and then began to make tea. When it was ready, she poured the tea into the scholar's cup until it began to overflow and run all over the floor. The scholar saw what was happening and shouted, stop, stop, the cup is full. You can't get any more in. The master stopped pouring and said, you are like this cup. You are full of ideas about Buddha's way. You come and ask for teaching, but your cup is full. I can't put anything in. Before I can teach you, you'll have to empty your cup. I love this story because it goes back to what we were just talking about. You walk into every situation with decades of assumptions and beliefs. And yet we think we can critically judge well, and everyone, but even the people who are in positions above us. And I'm not saying subject yourself to authority, but at least consider that they may know something and have experience that you don't have. Right. And and judging ourselves. Yeah.
1: You know, that the the research is abundant on how people are horrible judges of themselves. That's right. So, you know, to see someone you know, that story is perfect because when you ask someone, you know, how, how are you at this? I'm fantastic. You know, yeah. define fantastic one. Um, but you know, show me, uh, always question, always be curious. Uh, mm-hmm. there's a great study I used. Uh, I did a talk at, uh, Melt media about, um, what good listeners do. Borrowed the whole concept from a Harvard business review article that spoke to me. It was great. It was short, sweet, got to the point. Um, I just expanded it, And one of the studies is about uh, people who you know assess their own driving skills, and then they have peers assess their driving skills. Right. And of course, it doesn't align. And ours, you know our assessment is always better than other people's assessments. but it's but the big issue there is, what are you assessing it on? Um, so there's, there's so many variables in it, and so anytime it's that alarm again, somebody says, yeah, i'm 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 an expert at this okay, well, show me,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: you yeah. know, I, it's not that I don't trust you. I just want to see, I'm curious, you know, um, but uh, yeah. And the, and the, uh, um, you know, when you come in, horns blaring, lights shining, you know, I, I'm coming in to fix, I'm coming in to own this and everything. It's that same thing. You know, I would rather that they ask a lot of questions. That would make me feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. I trust them more. Um, I got it. Did you?
0: <laughs> the mosquito has killed everyone. Yep. We're, we're It's good. gone. We're it's safe. gone. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, when, when I get a job applicant, you know, and I get a resume, and it has, I don't know why people rate themselves in a resume. <laughs> First of all, that's a red flag. But when they're like, like a ten scale, my JavaScript is 10 out of 10, and oh, my yeah. HTML is you know, 9 out of 10, immediately I'm like, this person's clueless, you know? Yeah, yeah the only correct numbers are like five and six, Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe a seven. Right. Unless you wrote the spec, you're not an expert.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: yeah. Working from Mozilla. <laughs> and even yeah. then the people who write the specs are like, well, I don't know how it's going to be implemented. You know, I, I know how it's supposed to behave, but I don't know how it will behave. Um, so when I see people writing themselves on their resumes, I'm like, okay, why this person just doesn't know what they don't know. Otherwise they wouldn't be rating themselves. Yeah, I mean, as, as experts in our fields, uh, in certain areas, there's almost nothing that I would say I'm above a seven,
1: you know? Oh, oh, absolutely. (laughs) I it's yeah. You go out into the forums or stack overflow or any of those places and how can you not be humbled instantaneously by right. somebody who gives such a deep answer to something that you thought you were an expert in right. makes you realize you're not an expert, right? <laughs> There's, yeah. you know, that, that person, you know, clearly that's what they've done for decades. They've got that 10,000 or more hours there. They, they think, eat, sleep, breathe it. I bow to them. You yeah. know, I, I've never put that kind of effort in anything except a broad industry. That's, yeah. you know,
0: well, I'll close this episode with another example of that. There's a song called Fracture by the band King Crimson. I mentioned the guitarist Robert Fripp earlier. One of the reasons I went to find him, you know, and seek his, his training was because this song has eluded me for literally 20 years. You know, like, since the late 1990s, I have been studying this song. And I don't mean literally 20 years, like 24 hours a day or something, but... And by eluded, you mean playing it. Yeah. And even understanding it. Yeah. Like it's one of those things, the deeper you go into it, the less it makes sense, you know? So it's a very fast song. It doesn't sound fast, but when you go to play it, it's like, this is, this is so stupidly hard. Why would anyone write this? Why would anyone try playing this? So I went to learn from him and everything I learned, it was like it made no sense. You know, like, like he talked about, he he actually pulled me aside. We were at lunch and he goes, Anthony, you'll never be able to play Fracture until you can bend your thumb at, at the bottom knuckle of your thumb, you know? So not like where you normally bend your thumb, but the knuckle below that. So you need to keep a straight thumb and basically do this. And he kept... He kept bending his straight thumb from this knuckle, not the one at the wrist and not the one where we normally bend, but that one in between. <laughs> and I still don't quite understand, but it's made a huge difference in how I play the song. And it was that and so many other things, the way he changes strings when he's picking, the, the way he picks, the pick he uses, you know, all of these things, they all add up to this system that can lead to this song. But I'd spent so much time studying it that instead of making a video series about on my, my Make Weird Music channel, uh, my YouTube channel, instead of making a series on how to play it, my series is called Failure <laughs> to Fracture. You know, like it's all the things that have led to failure of playing this song, because I don't know if it's, I mean, Robert who wrote it says, it's impossible to play and it's not, impossible, it's like an aphorism, you know, there's truth in the aphorism, but you don't understand it until you experience it. Yeah. And to say that the song is impossible can only be understood by those who have tried playing it Right. for, and not just like for 10 minutes, I mean, for years. And there are, it's, I, I made this series thinking, yeah, maybe 20 people are going to get this. It yeah. turns out there's like hundreds of people around the world who are, have been trying <laughs> to play this song. And it's just, it's ridiculous. And these videos get thousands of views. You know, here I am thinking, how much more esoteric could it be? Right. But there really is a community of people around the world who realize this thing is impossible. And it really is hard. And we really don't understand how to play it. And to f- the series is called Failure to Fracture because it's the double meaning. I fail to play the song Fracture but it's also like a transition from, from total failure to playing fracture. (laughs) So it's a double meaning, but, um, you, it's like, if your cup is full, you can't truly understand what it is that you're experiencing because there's no room for other understanding. So unless we remove our assumptions, we're not going to learn. And so that's what I'm hoping that we can start doing through this podcast series, you know, take, listeners through this journey of cluelessness <laughs> yeah. and hopefully listeners will recognize it in their own lives realize their cup is not full there's lots of room in there or empty it when they have to yeah
1: yeah yep
0: yeah all right cool so uh that's the end of episode one the next episode we will be talking about um contradictory knowledge and showing up on time Showing up on time. Yeah. That's a good one. And again, the source of all of this is a book that I wrote called Clueless at the Work. Advice from a corporate tyrant. And (laughs) you can go to uh, cluelessatthework.com to uh, find out more. Thanks.